we are, episode 34 of Room 9 is coming at you. For this episode, I traveled out to Penfield, New York to hang out with a gentleman by the name of Keith Greer. And Keith was the teacher or instructor, whatever you want to call him, of the recovery coach classes that I attended out in Lockport, New York. And I didn't even tell this to Keith, and I can't believe I haven't, but when I first seen him, I was like, who is this bum that is going to be teaching these classes? And about two minutes into a a conversation with him, I'm just amazed at the knowledge this man has, the humility he has, the confidence he has in himself. And he's just an awesome human being to be around ridiculously smart and I absolutely loved every moment of this podcast with him I would definitely be taking him up on doing another one that is for sure we did after done editing that this episode is a little over an hour and a half but it just flew by I couldn't believe by the time we looked up when we were recording it was close to two hours our conversation was wonderful I learned so much from just this conversation with him not to mention when he was instructing the classes so I hope you guys will enjoy this episode as much as I did as I said this has been to date definitely up in my top three favorites and I look forward to sitting down with him again before I get this podcast underway room9podcast.com is awaiting your attention especially the contact page fill that form out get in touch with us also if you want to help spread this word and this lovely message of room nine and keep things going strong there is a support page you can read a letter to a donor which explains our finances and who controls it and who watches it because it is not just me that is touching it or holding on to it i have to go through somebody for the sole purpose of using that for room nine and room nine only Also, if you want a recovery coach, I encourage you guys to really get in touch with me or if you know somebody who wants a recovery coach. And after you listen to this episode, you might be wanting one or at least getting somebody in contact with me in order to get a recovery coach. And you can do that by emailing me at room9podcast at gmail.com. Just put the subject line as recovery coach and I will get connected with you and we will get that on a move. Other than that, that's all I got today. I'm recording this intro outside because the weather is beautiful. So I don't know if you can hear the birds or not, but it is awesome. I'm completely satisfied with the warm weather now that it is here. And as always, thank you for listening, guys. And I truly mean that. The support is just always amazing that I get for doing this. Things are only getting bigger. Things are moving only faster. And I have to remind myself to slow down sometimes. But anywho, get to our website. Let us know you're out there. Let us know what you want to hear, what you want to see. And I will shut up now and let you listen to this awesome podcast with Keith Greer. Wait a minute. You're showing coming. Oh, you better believe that. How you gonna know? Think about that one. You're showing That's the whole thing. That's what separates us. Yeah, things have changed. It's ridiculous. <laughs> Listening to morons for so long. I don't know what.
what's gonna happen, man. Like I, with audacity, I thought I was like, all right, I'm getting a, a grip here. Like I'm starting to know what I'm doing right. a little bit. And, and then, and then I got audition. I'm like, I don't know anything. <laughs> <laughs> I, lo- I mean, I have to the point what this is probably my favorite part about the podcast right. is obviously number one is recording yeah, the yeah. conversations, but editing it. I love it. I mean, you learn so much about yourself right. when you start listening to yourself talk all the time. I tell people that as much as I can't stand my voice, I love, I mean, I've learned so much. Right about who I am as an mm-hmm. individual, the things I say. And just this is pa- be- patterns of speech. Yep. Oh, beyond like saying like and yeah, ums right. all the time, just so much, you know, it forces you to become a good listener, when to not talk, when to keep your opinions here. I mean, so much I've learned from just doing this. It's awesome. Right. Me too. It is great. Welcome to my kitchen. Oh, it's a beautiful kitchen. We just got our uh, kitchen redone. Actually, it was right before. I shouldn't say just. For me, it just got redone because we got it done. And then that's like was the peak of my addiction. <laughs> it was in jail, was in rehab, was gone. And I'm like, I came back. I was like, oh, my gosh. So who's we? Uh, my girlfriend, Christine. Okay. I've been with her for um, five years. Okay. A little over five years now. Right. Uh, we met at uh, in a very interesting way because we were both were married and both had two kids. From those marriages. Yes. And when we met, we just immediately formed a friendship. Right. And at, at the end, because we both ended our marriages mm-hmm. so we could be together. Mm-hmm. And at the end of it, nobody believed like we didn't have sex or not. She's also, let me add on to the story. She's also 11 years older than me. Okay. And it's just, it's a like straight up out of a movie. <laughs> like you wouldn't believe. And, you know, so many people, you know, we're looking at like, this is a fling. She's having a... Right, it's never going to last. A midlife crisis right. kind of thing. And then I'm very thankful she knew me before my addiction really right. was took place because she she wouldn't have stuck it out, yeah. obviously. Right. But it was just, yeah, it's totally... I remember being with my wife and I'm like, I should not enjoy when my wife leaves so much and be so annoyed when she comes back not a good sign no not at all and i was just oh my gosh that has been one of my my biggest things now noticing in um recovery i've had just had a guy get kicked out of the the oxford house okay he is in a real he was in this relationship with this crazy woman just off the wall crazy and we tell him like just always arguing always just toxic toxic i see so many i have two other guys are in super toxic relationships Mm -hmm. say I know this is a toxic relationship. I need to get out of it. And they're still saying that three, four years down the road. Like, I don't understand it. Yep. It has been one of my biggest things is looking at these people in right. relationships. And right. then I started, honestly, it was actually on the drive here. I started thinking about love or, you know, when love is also, we think it's love and it's right. not. And maybe it's more of a scare to be alone. But love is a drug in itself. Just dopamine and right. everything. And so is being needed. Mm-hmm. Right. So is wanting to fix. So, you know, all of that. Or just, you know, as we talked about in the training, you can be wonderfully insightful about your stuff and not change any of it. Right. So, oh, you know, you can. Right. Oh, my gosh. You can know this isn't good. You can know this isn't working for me. You can know, you can know, you know, and you stay in that for a long time and you don't change and change is hard. It's hard for folk. It is. It is super hard. I just yeah. did um, a presentation out at Horizon Village. And I actually titled it Awakened Recovery. And I just kind of mm. go over um, 
four main points from right. the time I got arrested to now that have just really have helped me like tremendously and shared them with people. And but there's so many people that they do. They yeah. know everything yeah. about themselves that they need to change. And yet they don't change they don't. one thing. Right. And it is. And I had I think I had a Carl Jung quote up there. People will do anything, no matter how absurd, to avoid facing their own darkness. Oh, no and question. It is. Yeah. It's such a true thing. And that's why there's a like a Zen quote, if enlightenment was easy, everybody would tell their brother. <laughs> because it's not easy to go through yeah, the darkness of oneself and come out feeling right. good about yourself. And that was one of the number one things. I probably found three things when I was at, in rehab that caused me, because most people will say, I got not arguments, but big debates with counselors and even my parents. Like it has to be something about your brother and sister dying when you were 15. That's why you're using it. Right. I'm just like, I, I can't tell you guys enough. I've dealt with that. Right. Right. It took me 12 years, yep. but I dealt with it. Yep. And, but one of the biggest things was, is in my probably early twenties, I developed this insanely introspective attitude of where, all right, best way to fix the world is to fix myself. Right. So I stopped, like, this is what changed my, it was a shift in my relationship with my wife at the time. Right. And I stopped watching television completely. I just dove into philosophy and psychology and different theologies and just improved myself. But I did that without any self-love. Right. Any self-care. And so this list of shittiness got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. <laughs> and my hate, I was like, wow, I am the biggest piece of shit ever to walk this planet. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and there is, there's gotta be that self. And that's one of the biggest things I, in quotes, preach. Um, I really don't like that term, but I talk about a lot right. is I knew if I didn't get out of self pity. Right. And I knew if I did not learn to love, accept, right. forgive, right. have confidence in myself, I right. would go nowhere. That's it. Nothing. I mean, that's where it started right. for me. Look, that's behind that whole, you know, the whole thing where Lori and I asked people to do that strength list. Like mm-hmm. this whole personal development thing isn't going to take you anywhere if, if you just keep digging in all the negative and, and that's where you stay. So how do you celebrate all the good stuff? And you'll take care of the other stuff, but too many people put way too much focus on yep. the other stuff and just stay there their whole life, just kind of just beating themselves up and nothing changes. Wonderfully insightful about it, but nothing mm-hmm. changes. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Like when you did that list, I remember thinking like, wow, for the first time in my life, I I do this without any kind of, you know, you get yeah, that feeling yeah. sometimes like, oh, yeah. I'm right. You're writing something positive about yourself and yep. you feel bad about it. Right. And for the first time, I was like, yeah, oh, this is great. That's right. Yeah. You know, this is no problem good. now. Good, for good, me. good. Yeah. It is. That's a huge thing. And I think that's the number, like, really, that was my number one point in this presentation. The first right. one is you got to you get out of self-pity. I walked around so long. Right. With a chip on my shoulder. And this, that was another reason why I never followed through with creative ideas. Right. Because I felt like everything should be easy for me. Right. Because I was dealt a bad hand. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I hear you. <laughs> and that that doesn't get you. No, it doesn't no, no, get no, you very no. Far. It doesn't move you. But All yeah, right. thank you, you for roll? um yeah, thank you for coming on. We've been rolling. Oh, okay, good. Oh yeah, I just I just roll into it. I like starting off with that. I usually hit record without telling anybody. <laughs> I like starting off uh-huh. with uh, getting that natural uh-huh. flow in there. Good, good, and good. So yeah, we are going. Thank you for. Uh, allowing me in your to come up here in your hospitality well thanks for the invite this is uh this is exciting to be a part of this yeah this is uh it's growing it is it's like i told you before we hit record here it's um humbling it's very humbling good to see how it's yeah. just out of nowhere it started off as a fun little thing and i got the ceo of horizon health nice really just on a text 
email basis yeah, helps yeah. me with anything. Right. Hey, I would like to talk to somebody about finances, about small business. Right. Hold on. And she set me up and went up, met with some, uh, their financial advisor at Horizon Health in Getzville. It's just the people who are reaching out and just support. It's just been awesome. Good. It's really awesome. Gets me um, excited for the future because I know I can't go back to a, diff- a normal job. Right. I cannot do it. Yeah. So you were the um, one of the two instructors Correct. in my recovery coach classes. Right. And I very much well enjoyed those. Good. You do a lot of, um, I guess, yeah, give me a little rundown of basically your main thing. Yeah, you do coach. Right. So I, I, I exist in, a, I would like to say, exist in a few different areas these days. Um, in general, yes, I coach and I teach coaching. And uh, those are the two things that I think I do well. And the feedback to me is that I do them well. And they bring me great joy in uh, doing those. So uh, in my coaching world, I spend time primarily with two populations of folk. Uh, On one side, I work in the corporate world. So I do some executive coaching and training. And there, the focus is much more on, uh, I might work with a group of managers on how to manage people more productively, uh, a bit humanely, a bit more effectively. Outside of recovery? This is outside of recovery, right? Uh, There's one company here in the Rochester area that I do a lot of work for. And again, it could be anything from a six-month training project with a group of managers to individual work with managers to individual work with just employees who are looking to up their game. A lot of it is about transition. Most recent example, just this week, I was asked to facilitate a conversation uh, between two team members who are both vying for the same promotion and in trying to help them do that a little bit, again, humanely uh, and and, uh, honor their friendship and honor what's best for the team. Both are very passionate about wanting the same gig and it had gotten a little funky in some of the conversations. (laughs) So their manager asked me to come in and do a little work with them. So so that's kind of the corporate side. And then there's the recovery side. Uh, So there I am a recovery coach. I do see uh, clients individually, although that is slowing down some uh, because the training side of it that where you and I met has been picking up for my partner, Lori and I. So we do, Lori and I right now, I think are, if not the primary, one of the primary trainers in the central Western New York area Mm -hmm. for the recovery coach training, the certified recovery, what is it? SERPA, certified recovery peer advocate, right? So we do the training, we do supervision, we do training of supervisors. So that whole thing is really expanded. And then Apart from that, where I've gotten at this point in my career, and is also part of the reason why the actual one-on-one coaching is lessening, is I just feel like I'm at a place in my career where the one of the best ways I can give back is to share what I've learned in almost 40 years of doing this work in some different places. So above and beyond the work that I do with Lori, I speak as much as I can. I was just at the New York State uh, Social Work Conference speaking there about mm-hmm. working with families and addiction. I just got invited down to uh, Westchester County. It's interesting for me because c- my background is I am a clinical social worker and I am. I was just sharing this with somebody the other day. So I was at this state conference, all these social workers, and it still is amazing to me how much in many other parts of the helping world outside of the very specific world of addiction, treatment, and recovery, how many people are in the helping world and are not very knowledgeable about addiction. And as social workers, I I can't think of a population that social workers deal with where they're probably not going to run into substance use disorder. Mm -hmm. But it's still not something that is often a required course in in social work school, somewhat similar to people coming through med school, learning very little about addiction. Don't know much about it. Right. 
it, it's a fun conversation. And that, as I said, is something that I really enjoy doing. The feedback to me is I, I do it well. At the very least, I'm incredibly passionate about it. And I like to think after almost 40 years of doing this work in treatment, social work, school social work, family therapy, coaching, that I've got a little bit to say. Don't necessarily know if what I have to say makes sense to anybody, but <laughs> people get to tell me that if it does or it doesn't. I've never been shy about voicing my opinions and uh, I'll keep doing that. So it's a cool place to be because sometimes it blows me away that I have been doing this as long as I have, but it's a really nice place to be where now I can give back and, and I can share, well, here's been my experience. Here's, here's what worked for me, didn't work for me. Here's my take just on the whole treatment and recovery world and where that is going. And so it's a, it's a nice use of time right now. And as much as I love doing one-on-one -on -one coaching, the speaking part really jazzes me. Yeah, I'm a big fan of that too. Yeah. I, do, I do love getting out. Even when I was into the Christianity part, I did always enjoy getting up and talking in front right. of people. I feel like I, I also have a natural talent for that, mm -hmm. communicating that as well. But the one thing you talked about, you, just, you kind of mentioned in all of that was the lack of like education and awareness of people in the medical field or in the social work field. Right. I mean, anywhere, even in, I, I wrote a complaint to um, Rite Aid Pharmacy mm. because going in there and when people, I've heard so many stories about people who get their Suboxone being treated and it's been consistently Rite Aid, I've heard, where right. people are, they're just like they're dirt balls, scumbags, and it's insane to me. We have a, we have a really long way to go. Uh, uh, we do. Let me say this. We have come a long way. And I yeah. always really want to highlight that because I, I do worry and- you know, as, as you know, Lori and I have this radio show that we do here in Rochester. And one of our goals from the moment we started talking about it was that it had to be positive. Mm -hmm. There are there are plenty of voices in the treatment and recovery community that, and this is going to be my word, very judgmental, whine. They just whine mm -hmm. about what's not there. And, and I get it. And people are dying. This is crazy. But that always seems like just such wasted energy for me. So can we celebrate what's here? Mm -hmm. And nowhere in that celebration are we not very realistic about what else needs to be here. So um, we really want to keep that conversation moving forward. But there is a lot of work to do. Stigma is alive and well with this issue. How folks with substance use disorder and their family members are viewed, you know, your example being one. Yeah. That's one of those things that I can feel my blood boil. <laughs> I, I, I just... It's, it's a place where it is very hard for me to be calm and to be professional, especially when stigmatized language or attitude or thought is coming out of people who are professionals. So I just mentioned to you that I was at the, <laughs> at the state social work conference. So mm -hmm. I, I do this hour and a half presentation on how to effectively and respectfully engage family members. And so much of it is built around language and stigma and how to reach out to family members without labeling them codependent and enablers and all of that. So I get some really nice feedback from, from the presentation. And when my presentation is done, I then walk into the next one. And it was a presentation on paper. It looked really cool. It was two PhDs, college professors. This is their area of expertise. And the title of their workshop was something about helping people in recovery find meaning in their recovery. I thought, that sounds, that sounds really awesome, yeah, that right? Does, yeah. So I walk into this workshop, and the content they presented was okay. Uh, it, it wasn't anything earth-shattering, but it was okay. But what struck me is every other word out of this one instructor's mouth was substance abusers. 
<laughs> right? So here's this person, PhD, mm-hmm. clinical social worker, college professor at a professional conference, continuing to use this antiquated language. She kept using clean and dirty and all of this stuff that, you know, drives Lori and I absolutely mm-hmm. crazy. And again, it, it just, I sit there and I think there's the work that is yet to be done. I, I trust her heart's in the right place. And, and she clearly had a, a, other than that, a very nice message about people in recovery and moving forward in recovery, but holding on to some of that language drives the language. me nuts. I did a podcast with, she was a mental health therapist in, in downtown Buffalo. And we, we, talk, we discussed, you know, somewhat of a long length about the language thing because right. I think it's crazy. I personally think like my girlfriend, Christine, will joke around with me. I'll be like, well, you know, if you didn't call the cops on me and she'd be like, well, if you weren't a junkie, <laughs> you know, so there's that direct language that I, you know, I always laugh. Like even right. when I was first asking for money on this podcast, right. I'm like, I got to figure something. I got to make somebody else completely in charge of it, which I did Christine. Because in my mind, I'm like, somebody's going to be behind a computer. I'm not giving this junkie money. Right. Like, he just wants money and all yeah. of that. So I always joke. I get a laugh out of the language. I think it's funny. But I also completely understand the other. Because there are people who aren't as confident as I am in their recovery. And that was one of my biggest things with the Rite Aid thing. Is somebody right. could come into this store already feeling ashamed because they're going to an AA group that tells them that they're not clean right. and they're not sober because they're even coming in to use this Suboxone. And yet you're going to sit here and judge, like you could send somebody off the deep end. So true. Look, and there's a difference. What you just described with you and your girlfriend, that banter between you and her within a relationship where there's love and respect, you, mm-hmm. you know you know where she's at in terms of yeah. how she sees you. A complete stranger, it's different. Totally different. And for me, a whole nother level beyond stranger is professional. Yeah. That you are a professional in the helping field. And in this case, up there talking about this issue, still using this antiquated language. And and I know the the other side of me says, all right, Keith, take a breath, take a step <laughs> back. This conversation about language really is relatively new. It, it, it absolutely it really is. is. And yeah. I and I, as someone who is passionate about it, needs to remember that mm-hmm. that this is a new conversation. And there is, again, just a lot of work to be done before we get to Joe Blow reading the newspaper sitting in his living room within the treatment and, <laughs> the treatment and recovery world and the professionals who work in it. That's that's my passion because that's, that's the place where I, I look at fellow professionals and say, let's take a step back and think about this language you're using. When you refer to people as addicts, and again, you've heard me say this, do we use this kind of language to describe any other medical condition. And we don't. We don't call people their disease with any other medical condition. So can we just look at that and use that as a bit of a model to be thoughtful about the fact that somehow, somehow, language has been created over the last 50, 60, 70 years around that drives the narrative around substance use disorder treatment and recovery that doesn't exist with any other medical conversation. Mm. That alone should tell us something about the funkiness of this language. And and I do have to remind myself, it, it, it's, it's new. a new conversation. <laughs> and sometimes I can get stuck in some magical thinking that, of course, everybody should see the world like me. For me, language is, it's so funny how a, a simple mouth noise can be so powerful. Mm-hmm. And I knew immediately to get out of this whole self-pity that I had to stop, you know, I spill over a glass of water and stop saying, Sean, you're such an idiot. Right. In language in itself, how we talk to ourselves oh my is God, such a so huge powerful. thing. Because I've I've learned, you know, after watching and observing 
you know, just my own self that your ego will like, hold on. It doesn't right. matter what kind of word it is. If you use it enough, right. you identify with it. Right. And that's always been one of my biggest things about going to the A&NA. Like just, I'm more than just an addict. I'm a Way brother. More. I'm a right. son. I'm right. a husband. I'm a, you know, a father. I'm all these other things. Right. I, I'm a musician. I'm a podcast host. Right. Like there's so many other things and I don't go around saying, you know, to everybody, hi, oh, nice to meet you. I'm Sean. I'm a father. Right. Like, you know, you just don't do that. So why am I saying I'm an addict all the time? Because then you you get that and then some people counter that you're a recovering addict. Well, what the hell does that matter? That's not the only part of me that right. is me. Like there's so many other That's things. Right. So in, for me, inherent in that statement is the your and. Mm-hmm. Right. Whether you want to use the word addict or recovering addict, in some ways, that's not the issue. The, the issue is that we somehow have come to, in our language and, and how we discuss this issue, it has become okay to equate a person with a disease state or to equate a person with a an inactive disease state, you're in recovery. Mm-hmm. And the point is, people are not their disease state. People have a disease. So, you know, you've heard me say, I yeah. would not stand up at a, at a support group and for folks that. who are survivors of cancer as I am and say, Hey guys, my name is Keith. I'm cancer. I wouldn't right, Cause that's exactly what would happen. <laughs> yeah, People, it, it sounds, sounds weird, right? <laughs> but here, so let's bring it back to it, to the addiction field. People are very comfortable saying, hi, my name's Keith. I'm an addict. So what I've started to do is started to ask people, what is the origin of the word addict? Well, the origin of the word addict is addiction, right? So if that's the origin of the word, would you stand up at a meeting and say, hi, my name's Keith. I'm an addiction. Even that sounds funky. Mm-hmm. So how do we, recovery, not recovery, whatever, how do we start to allow people to separate themselves from their active addiction, which then often gets the response. But Keith, if if people don't stay in touch with the fact that they're an addict, they're going to go back to using. There's no evidence of that. There's just no evidence that, that that happens. That's some antiquated thinking that I don't see. My belief is based on a whole lot of other things I now know about how we think about change, about how we think about ourselves, about that inner dialogue you just Mm -hmm. talked about, is if we can help people identify all of their strengths, that that's the pathway to recovery for people. And nowhere in there do we forget who we are or do we forget the consequences of some of the choices maybe Mm -hmm. that were made in active addiction, which by the way, are just symptoms of active addiction, not inherently something wrong with the person. Then, then people move forward. They move forward. And again, just this, the other piece with this, I was reading an article a few weeks ago that really, it has not left my head. It really has me thinking. And the author was talking about this, this concept in recovery of the redemption story. So I was in active addiction for, you know, 10, 20 years, and I was this horrible person, and now I'm in recovery, and I'm redeemed, and, you know, I'm moving in a much more positive way. And it was, it was just a really interesting take that I had never thought about before. Because again, do we do that conversation with any other disease? Was there any redemption involved in my life when I went from having colon cancer to surgeon cut it out of me, it's no longer active? There was no redemption involved because there didn't need to be redemption because I was the same person when cancer was active in me as I was when mm-hmm. cancer was not. And so the, what, he, what the author was talking about is, is there a part of this redemption story that is built up for, we have built up for people in recovery that actually dishonors people in recovery? Because mm. does, it, does it somewhat say that when you were in active addiction, you were bad, you were less than versus you just are a person who had an active disease state and now you're good? Because you're you're in recovery, mm-hmm. 
it was, I had never thought of it that way. And I keep going back and forth in my head because people in recovery should celebrate recovery and who they are and where they've gotten their lives. Just as a cancer patient uh, right, should celebrate right, after right. they're but in admission. Yeah. But it's that moral quality that what what I think the author was saying is, do we still view the person in active addiction with some moral compass? And now you're in, at a better moral place in recovery when no, that you've always been a really good person. Mm-hmm. Always. You just happen to have this active disease in you that some of the symptoms are some pretty funky behavior that hurts others. So even that was... It was just a fascinating new way to think about this whole this whole narrative we've created around people in recovery that again that we don't create around any other active we disease don't, state. We don't. It's funny the uh, the detective that because like I shared with you, my girlfriend ended up I disappeared when I came back into her house and took some stuff and pawned it, and she called the cops. You know, worried like I don't know is he dead? Is he not? But right, you know, she's he was saying to her. And luckily, I am attracted to very smart, intelligent, <laughs> independent, strong-willed women. And she, he was saying to her, though, like, he's going to, you know, so this is just in people, you know, the yeah, stealing. Right. Like, he's going to keep doing it. And she's like, he, I've been with him for, at that time, it was about four years. He's never stolen anything from me ever until right. he was using right. heroin. Right, right. <laughs> it's just so funny. Like, it's, it's got to, he's going to keep stealing. Yeah, that that piece, we that's a, a place there's so much work to be done in helping people understand. And again, no at no time. People are clueless. Do I ever want to diminish the types of behavior that come out of people when they're in active addiction? And that that behavior really hurts people that they love. I, I never want to diminish that. But I also want, we, we need to help people understand that all of those behaviors are symptoms of this disease, mm-hmm. not inherent weakness or inadequacy or f- a fundamentally immoral person. That's the part that is so hard for people who don't understand addiction to wrap their head around. And, and so that, that theme that these are negative, bad people that we don't have to worry about, they're doing it to themselves, they could change this if they want to, it's a choice, all of that. It's so hurtful and it's not based in anything we really understand about exactly what's going on in somebody's brain when they are in the middle of active addiction. I'm trying to think of the term. It's like the Kruger effect. I think it is where you think you know a lot about something when you don't know anything. (laughs) I think it is, you know, basically, for example, like I said about editing audio. Right. My program, I had it. I got to know it just a little bit. Yeah. And I thought, oh, I really got this. And then I opened this up. I'm like, wow, I don't know nothing. Yeah. And you see that all the time, whether it's the environment, no matter what it is, people read an article online, think they know everything about something, form a very strong opinion about it, and then go out and talk about it as if they know everything about it. That's right. And the people who know the most about it are the ones that are like, yeah, I don't really know much about this, but this is what I think. This is my opinion as to, you know, with how much information I have taken in, this is my opinion. And you see that all the time. And that's such a big thing in addiction. It's huge. Somebody who's never been through it, somebody who's never had a loved one experience it, just automatically think, just look at us. I mean, I live in Oxford House. That's all in our neighborhood, all in our neighborhood. Having right. pe- people across the street nodding out that judge us <laughs> like like we're the biggest pieces of crap ever. Right. And you see it everywhere. And it's like, you guys have no idea. Right. No idea. Right. So back to the importance of us pushing this conversation about language and not that it's the be all and end all, Mm -hmm. but until we clean that part up. And again, my, my bias would be, especially among fellow professionals in, in the treatment and recovery world. That's probably the most important spot. Yeah. Then we, and I, and the language is still being used. It's, it's, you know, I, I know there are treatment programs in town who run treatment groups 
And all of the people in the treatment groups are expected to walk into the treatment group and introduce themselves as, hi, my name is Keith. I'm an addict. Mm-hmm. And, and that's not 12 step. That's They're a treatment, treatment group, group. Yeah. that that is adhering to this, again, very old uh, stigmatized way of uh, asking their people to think about themselves. So we will continue that conversation. It's not going away. How do you feel like, what have you seen working as far as like the best way to get people educated on stop using this type of language? I, I, I think any conversation, we, we just need to have the conversation. So here's one of the things that, that I find as somebody who speaks to my share of professionals. I find that sometimes, and this isn't anything specific or particular to me, I just happen to maybe be the person at the front of the room, that when I get up and talk about this as someone who's been doing this work for a long time, I look around the room and I see people's faces and I see people going like this. And so when we talk about this, so again, just even at this conference I was at with the social workers, I look around the room, I'm watching my audience as, as we're having this conversation and you see people, yeah, that really does make sense. So I think on some level, at least maybe in the professional community, it's not a hard sell. It's almost like somebody just needs to get up and give other professionals permission hmm. to say, wow, you know what? You're right. This language is a, it's a little funky. It's, it's, it's stigmatized. Hmm. You know what? I've never really thought about it that way, the whole equating a person with their, with their disease state. But yeah, that really makes sense. I don't think it's that tough of a conversation. It just needs to happen. Mm-hmm. And it needs to continue to happen. Because I have not, I, in all the times I have the opportunity to to do this conversation. Do I get the people who come up to me at the end, usually people who have been steeped in 12-step, and God bless them, they're in their recovery, and I don't argue with that, who will argue with me a little bit about, Mm -hmm. you know, that I call myself an addict and I'm proud of it. And look, I will always honor multiple pathways. So whatever works for you works for you. But what works for you in your recovery and who you are when you put your professional hat on are two different people and two different conversations. But the large majority of the feedback I get when I'm in front of professional audiences talking about this is, oh my God, that makes sense. Thank you. And so I, I do think, I've always viewed systems, so any large system, so we can talk about the treatment and recovery system, or I spent 30 years in public ed, mm-hmm. that there is a fundamental difference between the people in a system and who they are and how they try and be and the inertia of the system. And what I find in the treatment and recovery system is there this language and this way of thinking about people, it has become so ingrained in the system that it's just a part of the inertia of the system. And it can be pretty difficult if there's any individual counselor, coach, whoever sitting in a treatment agency who maybe has an inkling that, man, there's something about this language that just doesn't feel right. But that's how they've been taught from the day one. From day one. Yep. And so again, what I'm finding, the more and more we have this conversation is this reaction, which is, yeah, that really this makes sense, Keith. Thanks. Yeah. You, you, oh, we can use different language. Oh, that's, that's <laughs> not minimizing. That's not enabling. That No. American Medical Association, American Academy of Addiction Medicine, all of these folks have come out and said, person first, medically appropriate, and then I add recovery celebratory language, that that's where we need to go. So this isn't a conversation being led just by Lori and I or some other you know funky folk out there. This is the, the medical it's organizations who are saying, we need to be thoughtful about this. And you're seeing it other places, which is really cool. I have a good friend who is a community health nurse, and he was telling me that they're getting, what they're hearing in their profession is, can they move away from calling people a diabetic hmm. to a, a person with diabetes? And then 
Um, a couple of months ago, I was reading an article about the latest thinking in language around talking about suicide. So how have we always referred to it? Someone has committed suicide. And, and what the folks who are in the know in that world are saying, there's a piece about that language and about that word that almost feels like somebody has committed a crime. <laughs> so now it's death by suicide. And I know people out there, when, when they hear this, any conversation like this about language, ah, oh, it's just touchy-feely. It's not. Don't, I mean. It's not. There's this ethnobotanist I love, Terrence McKenna, and he always talked about the world being made of language. That's it. It completely is. So something that seems so lightly, but everything exists. Right. Essentially, everything exists because we give it a name. We give it a name. And that has so much power. That's right. And right. when we start, you know, we love the negative too. Yeah. So yeah. once you once you start speaking of everything in a negative way, right. like we are addicted to it right. for some reason. And that was kind of this comparison always, and it's almost like shifting gears a little bit, but being addicted to this negative, I was thinking, well, why is that? Why is it? And it's almost like, because I feel like our, our psyche needs hope. Right. And in order to have hope, you need to have something, you know, that you're right. suffering. Right. But let me ask you this. So for me, I remember in the beginning, like saying I'm Sean and I'm an addict right. was was liberating. Okay. For, for a time. Yeah. And then eventually it, it did, it wore off for me. Like, okay, why am I keep, why am I saying this? And that's kind of probably why I went more into like the refuge recovery. Right. Where, you know what, I'm just, am. Right. I'm just here. Right. I'm here. I'm now. I'm not identifying with anything, whether right. it's anything. But there are a lot of people, you know, the first step to fixing something is admitting it and, right, right. and all of that. What do you, I mean, what do you have to say about as far as when people will give you that argument? Look, again, I will, when I'm in a conversation with someone about their recovery, I come at it. Individualize it. It is, this is your recovery, dude. You tell me, right? Mm -hmm. I will honor multiple pathways. It is not my place to tell anybody how to do their recovery. So if... You calling yourself an addict, if you calling yourself an orangutan works for you. <laughs> Just stop calling other people right, orangutans. Right. I, I, I won't argue with that. But here's what we're seeing, and, and research is bearing this out. There's this uh, researcher at Harvard by the name of John Kelly, who just is a prolific researcher and author in the world of substance use disorder. Mm -hmm. And he's really starting to dig into what does recovery look like? If we were to poll the 24 million folks in the United States who would identify at any given moment as being in recovery, what, what does that look like? Because again, we have had this, this perspective in popular culture that recovery is a bit of a 12-step model. Inpatient, outpatient, total abstinence, 12-step 12 12-step 12 adherence. That, 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 mm -hmm. That's been it. And, that, and if you're doing that, you're doing well. And if you're not doing that, somehow you're not working a good enough program. You're failing. Right, you're failing. <laughs> The research is telling us something different, and we shouldn't be surprised. And so your what you just described from your experience is what we're seeing is that for most people, recovery and what they do in the name of their recovery changes and morphs and grows and develops. And what I needed on the first day I decided to take on recovery, which maybe included that sense I of referring to, to myself as, as I, ha you know, I'll use this language, I'm an addict. Maybe that works for a little while. And then eventually, ah, you know, I don't know if that works for me anymore. So there's something about the narrative at Refuge Recovery that seems to speak to me a little bit more. And again, that's the language I always use when I work with folks around their recovery is of all the different pathways and options out there to support your recovery, what speaks to you? Because we know there is certain language, certain concepts that just land on people and they say, wow, that makes this sense. Works. And there's others, other kinds of concepts that just don't. And it's another place where I think people can get a little caught up in their own pathway in looking at someone who doesn't 
buy into their pathway and saying, you're not working a hard enough program or you haven't hit bottom or something like or that. Or more so going out and forcing it on somebody forcing as it if on it's somebody. the recipe right. for all. Right, right. So when I work with folks in recovery as a coach, I'm constantly asking them, how do you want to define your recovery today? How do you want to expand your definition of recovery? What does this look like of all the different possible recovery supports out there? What are the ones you want to explore? And not just the traditional ones. So not just it's got to be an AA meeting or something specifically related to addiction. Um, on our, you know, on our Facebook page, I posted an article I think a couple of weeks ago about some of the research on what goes on in our brain when you're out gardening. Hmm. All the good stuff that goes on that. in our brain, right? I that, love it, right? Yeah. So, so there, and all that we've learned in in just the last 10, 15 years about mindfulness practices, which I think is a little bit of what's behind some of the refuge recovery kind of thing. Absolutely, yeah. It's, right? I mean, it's based around Buddhism, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's the piece that that we just have to do is to invite people to explore all of that, and then, as you know from the recovery coach training, come at them from the standpoint of complete autonomy. You know, person, you know what's best as another human being, I can easily get wrapped up in telling you what I think is best, but don't know if that's best for you. I will treat you with that that honor and that respect and that autonomy that every direction you move in, in, in regards to your recovery is yours. It's not anybody else's. And I find in working with people who've been through some different, more traditional, maybe traditional treatment experiences, that conversation with them at first, they're not sure what to do with that because they are used to people, well-meaning yeah, people, hearts absolutely. in the right place, telling, telling them, them, this is what recovery should be for you. This is how you do it. Right. And we know people can come up with their own answers. And by the way, the other thing about autonomy, and you mentioned this before about uh, that police officer who was telling your girlfriend that you're lying to him. Here's what we know about, because if you ask people, do people in active addiction lie? Most people would say, well, of course they do. My worry is that in their head, their definition for why people lie is, again, kind of this immoral piece, right? There's something inherently and fundamentally wrong with them. But here's what we know. We know that for the most part, people in active addiction do use dishonesty as a defense system, and they use it for a very specific reason. And that is because they are often in conversations with people who are trying to make them do things, hmm. who are robbing them of autonomy. Now, it doesn't mean their heart's not in the right place. It could be a spouse saying, you better go to treatment or else. But it's often a probation officer saying, you better or mm -hmm. else. An employer saying, you better or else. And it's not as simple as those people don't have a right to take a stand, because they do. It's, once again, what have we learned in just even the last 10 years of what goes on in our brain when we are told what to do, when, oh we are when our autonomy is taken away? We know things now that we didn't know a generation ago that can inform us in how to do this change conversation with people. And one of the things we know is when you tell people what to do, their default setting it in their brain is not do it. Not do it. It, even if you were going to do something very happily and on right. your way to do it, somebody told you to go do it. Right. It makes it, t you don't want to go do it. You do, right. Go right. pick up dog poop, even That's though you're right. going to do it. Now I don't want to. I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it anymore because right. you just told me to. Right. <laughs> and But then the flip side of it, which is hard for people to believe, is when you treat folks in, even in active addiction, from a standpoint of total autonomy, individual, this is your life, your recovery. People are fundamentally brilliant about their own lives. If, if we can take away that dynamic of, I'm going to make you, mm -hmm. people figure it out. And I will argue it actually strengthens their recovery because then every decision they make about their recovery is theirs. It's not, and it's yep. not being made to make somebody else happy Develops or to shut somebody else. 
everything. It's, it really is just for me. It's so analogous to like the enlightened sages throughout the history of time, where they would go off in the middle of nowhere. And somebody would come up and want to learn right from them, and they can't just be like just live in the now. Right. You know, no, they take them on this journey right. of all right. You got to go figure this out. You got to touch base with this. You got to go touch base with this. Right. And you have to figure it out for yourself. Yes. And in order for I mean, even with me, I knew I had to figure out my own my own pathway. Right. I knew I had to figure out what is going to work for me and what is going to keep me from ruining my life again. Right. And I had to figure that on my own. And I've developed all sorts of different ways. Um, right. Because any answer that comes from inside you mm -hmm. is thousands of times better than any answer that could come from me. Mm -hmm. No matter how knowledgeable I might be, I'm not knowledgeable about your life. And, Absolutely. And now, let me just add a, a caveat to all of this. If you are a family member of somebody in active addiction, everything I'm saying probably sounds pretty funky. Because, but <laughs> Keith, but Keith, we have to force them into treatment, and we have to. And I totally get that. The work that people like Lori and I do with family members is helping them figure out how to bring this autonomy concept into the conversation because the rules around change aren't any different whether I'm having a conversation with a friend or it's my child. Mm -hmm. The emotion is different. Emotion is completely what, different. What I feel yeah. and the fear as a parent maybe, if I have a child, especially with opioid use disorder these days. So I don't want to in any way minimize that or dishonor that reality. But what we know is often what comes out of family members in that fear is not very productive. It's not effective. It doesn't work. And so like, usually it's more gasoline on the fire. Often. Mm -hmm. And so people like, you know, some of what people like Lori are brilliant at is helping parents and family members take a step back, take a breath, honor their motivation that this is so frightening and that there probably isn't anything more complicated than loving somebody with an active substance mm -hmm. use disorder, but engaging them in a conversation about being more effective, not judging it, just more effective. And so as recovery coaches, we will always honor the motivation, which is I just want my loved one better. Mm -hmm. And, and I'm, I'm filled with fear and dread, but then say, okay, how do you want to engage them in a conversation that honors autonomy, especially because very often that parent is engaging a child who's 30, 35. They're, they're not 13 anymore. <laughs> but what you see because I, I just had this conversation with a parent. I spoke about a month ago at a recovery home down in Westchester County to a bunch of parents. And I did this role play with one of the dads. So his kid is like 26, 27, and he's in this recovery home. And the dad was telling me that the kid keeps calling him every week and said, you know, blaming the parents. You didn't tell me that how long I would have to be here. And it's your fault. And you're making me be here. And I turned to dad and, and said, but wait, dad, your son is a 26-year-old man, right? You're not making him be here. No, no, Keith, I am. We're making him be here. I said, whoa, 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 let's talk about reality here. He is a 26-year-old man. Now, I, I get what he looks like because of active addiction, mm -hmm. but can we all be honest that if he wanted to leave, he could leave, right? Mm -hmm. It would be his choice. So you get to choose, Dad, whether you own that, what he's giving you, or you say to him, look, son, I love you. Your mom and I hope you stay, but we're not making you stay because this is your recovery. And when I said that to him, he looked at the fear in his eyes because, and this, and then we said, and then I asked him, I said, dad, let me ask you something. Tell me how old your son was when you first had a conversation with him about your worry about his substance use. 14. 
I said, so, so let's take a step back here. I said, what you're telling me is there's probably a bit of a vibe to your conversation with your son at 26. Still 14. That is still 14. Mm-hmm. And I can honor that at 26, as one of the symptoms of active addiction is, he probably sometimes looks and sounds 14, which is <laughs> tremendously difficult to, to figure out how to parent. But as a, this is one of the things we can help parents understand. You're now dealing with a 26-year-old. Parent, you have a right to look at that 26-year-old and have an expectation that they're going to conduct their life like any 26-year-old would. You kind of get the reality of active addiction, but the only other option to that mindset is to treat them like they're 14. And that's not going to work. That's not going to be an effective process. So so what we role played with dad is how he could do a conversation with his son. And when his son is doing that 14-year-old pissy adolescent thing, you're making me do this and it's your fault, how he could lovingly say, we hope you stay. That would be our hope. It is your choice. You're a 26-year-old man. This is your recovery. We want you to take responsibility for it. And nowhere in there does he as a dad have to own guilt or or shame or like it's his fault that his kid is there. It's such a challenging conversation for parents. But I just tell parents all the time, will you work with somebody? Work with a coach somewhere. Educate, educate, educate. it's such a difficult conversation when you are looking at your child. In the middle of this. And you think about, I mean, I think my parents have already buried two kids. Right. And right. my mom was the same way. She was just like, I don't know right. what to do. And right. it is so important to, yeah, educate. Because right. the conversations have to be had. And that emotion does. That emotion takes over. You want to control your child and make yeah. them do everything so you can keep them safe. Right. And, and it doesn't work. No. No. And it, it doesn't work at all. Right. It, it, it Sometimes it's more, it's counterproductive. Right. Yeah, so that's something. I mean, I find most of my most of the people who listen to this podcast are usually loved ones of an addict. Right. As soon as I did an episode with my sister in like the first, I think six or seven episodes, it just took off. Yeah. Once I started doing, I did one with my mom. Did two with uh, my girlfriend Christine. Did one with my best friend Dave. And once I started doing that, it just family members are loving it. Good. They are. They really are. But that's the thing, too. Like like I said, I haven't done too much 12-step stuff because that was a big turnoff for me because I went in there and then somebody was trying to tell me, you know, this is when I, you know, because I said, okay, I never was a fan of it from the beginning, but I've always, I got to try this open-mindedly and see what it's all about. So I got a sponsor. Right. And as soon as he told me that I should wait till I get to the step of resentments, because I said, I had a conversation with my ex-wife and I just, I told her, didn't bring up any of the crazy negative shit about her part. I apologize for my faults in our relationship. And he said, well, you should really wait to do that till you get to the fourth step. Yeah, right. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I'm done here. <laughs> like, how are you going? Why would you tell somebody, you know, when the universe puts this opportunity in front of me to make this apology? Right. Hey, with not expecting anything back. And I didn't get nothing back from that woman. Right. No, I'm sorry to. No, this was my fault. Look, it, it becomes, it I think like, it becomes oh. easy in it because, again, change is so difficult. Us, us, us human beings, we're so complex. I, I do think in that complexity, it can become easy for people to want to put some structure, some parameters. They want a recipe. A, 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 a rest, beautiful word. Mm-hmm. A recipe for what, what to do to create change. And we know that doesn't work. And we know it doesn't work for people in their own recovery. And the world, the treatment and recovery world has been just as guilty, maybe if not more, in giving that recipe-oriented feedback to family members, right? Well, you need to do this, and you need to do that, and you need to take stuff away. But they Set the, boundaries. The, the what messages, does that even mean? The, all right, who knows what, does what that, that means? What does that even mean? <laughs> now, I, I do believe 
it does mean something, but it's but then we need to sit with the family yeah. member and say, let's really operationalize what a boundary would look like. And then if you did this, what are some of the pros and cons and how might it feel to you and help family members do that conversation? Because we have historically looked at family and said, you should do this when they haven't. We label them enabling or codependent, or then we do this amazingly crazy and disrespectful thing where we say, "Well, you just you just need to boot them out. You need to mm. take this child who you love tough with love. every fiber of your being and boot them out." And the whole tough love thing, which again we know tends not to work really well for folks, but nowhere in there have we spent that individual time, I think, with family members and really helped them think through this. It, it's one of the reasons why Lori and I grabbed onto this concept of effective ineffective, because it takes judgment away. It it just We just start by honoring that you love your kid and everything that has come out of you in response to their substance use disorder has come out of you because you love your kid. Mm-hmm. And, and the definitive book on how to get people into recovery hasn't been written yet. So you're just trying. We can honor that mom and or dad or family member. And then we can ask, tell me the times in your interaction with your family where member where it has felt effective. Not even it's worked. Effective. It has felt where you have felt like an effective partner in their recovery. Because we would say that family members have the opportunity to be the most effective partner Mm -hmm. in their loved one's recovery. But there are some parameters around how to make that happen. And what we find is, what we have found, is if we do that first piece, like, can we just honor how difficult this is? Can we honor your love for your child? Can we honor that you're doing anything and everything you can? If we can take five minutes to do that piece with family members and then ask the effective question, what you get is you get family members who will turn to you and you will hear the sadness in their voice and they will say, no, I usually don't feel effective. All right, let's have that conversation. What might be some ways to come at your family member where you will feel more effective, where you can take good care of yourself, just start digging in a little bit into self-care, which is really hard for parents to do. Mm-hmm. And that you can you can do both, and that the evidence is things like autonomy and turning the responsibility for your f- child's recovery over to them. Statements like "I will always support your recovery, but I will not support your active use." Silly concepts, you know. Lori uses this all the time con- of the hula hoop, right? That if that will say to a parent, "Put on a hula hoop." Everything inside that hula hoop: your thoughts, your feelings, your choices, your decisions, your reactions, yours. Step outside of that hula hoop land of what you're not in control of, including your child. Mm-hmm. That we can do these conversations with family members, and they can become much more effective. They will feel more effective. They will have clearer boundaries. As you said, talk about a nebulous word that we just love to throw around. <laughs> have better boundaries. <laughs> that that family members can get to a place that really supports their loved one. The only thing we can't do is guarantee right, that everybody's mm-hmm. going to find recovery. And we just always have to honor how frightening that is. But there's great ways to have this conversation that honor each individual and that this recovery journey for the person in recovery or family members is unique to that person, to that family, and get away from that whole recipe thing because it doesn't work. No, if it was that easy. It would be awesome if it, it was that be. easy. There would not be quite right. We'd write the cookbook right now. Right. Yes. Oh, we definitely would. Hey, one of the biggest things I, I learned, at least real quick, 
was when I started hearing stories of this continuous relapse thing, just, you know, people who had 20 years clean or whatever. And this is like a thing I'd probably say on every show, I bring this back up because it is the one thing I knew I had to at least get down was people get, you know, who have some form, some length of sobriety tend to get this overconfidence. They tend to uh, move away from even thinking about it, think they got it all figured out, think they got it taken care of and stop working on themselves and mm-hmm. their recovery. And then all of a sudden they wake up in a relapse. And I knew very, very quickly, even in jail, that if my quote I came up with was, I know I got this as long as I know I don't got this. Yeah. And to always find a way to keep where I was in the forefront of my mind so that I'm continuously working on myself and not right. going back to it. Right. And that was that was probably the one of the biggest things I've seen. And I mean, that's just I mean, that's really when I approach anybody. That's kind of my, my first piece of advice with anybody is that, I mean, don't don't forget about the, right. the, the negatives, you know, where you came from in that sense. But we do. We do. We get fixated on all the shitty parts of ourselves. Yeah, I don't want uh, the flip side and, of that is don't stand in your negatives. Yeah. And don't believe that the the answer to happiness, satisfaction and meaning in your life is ignoring it, it. is digging into the negatives every day. Mm-hmm. And and so my worry sometimes is, do we give that message that that's where you need to cast your gaze to keep yourself safe? And and I would just make the argument, no, that there's a, I can't, I'm blanking on her name right now. It'll come to me. But there's a psychologist out there who wrote this book about the difference between an open and a closed mindset as you go through life. And a closed mindset would be somebody who believes that you reach this certain point in life and whatever you know, you now know for the rest of your life. And an open mindset would be, no, we're, we're going to grow every single mm-hmm. day till the day we die. I try and build that into my conversation with folks when I work with them around their recovery of when I talk to people about how do you want to expand your definition of recovery, part inherent in that is that recovery is way more than just what you do to not use. Now that's incredibly important that's a big part of it, but it's if not you a, have yeah. defined total abstinence as your pathway. But what else, human being, do you want to do to continue to grow and expand who you are and dig into the corners of your life where you are looking for things like satisfaction and meaning. And that's so much more than just some of the conversation we're going to have about the use, no use aspect of your recovery, whatever it may be. The other thing we have to always also remember, and again, this is not in any way, shape or form meant to minimize the potential destructiveness of lapse and relapse and that people will find recovery and they will go back out and use and bad stuff happens, including people dying. So I get all that. But it's but the whole lapse and relapse conversation is another one that has been built up in a different way than we talk about lapse and relapse with other health-related conditions. Mm. So when you look at the, the relapse rates, let's say, for any health condition that requires behavior change, weight loss, I'm told uh, I'm, I'm susceptible to a heart attack, high blood pressure, diabetes, even including heart transplant, health, health situations where people are told you have to make significant changes to your health practices. The relapse rates are similar to the relapse rates for substance use disorder. I imagine, yeah. Right? We mm-hmm. are not good at change as human beings. No, we're not. <laughs> even when our life is on the line. Mm-hmm. Uh, a very powerful article I read look, a number of years ago. how many people ago. smoke cigarettes. <laughs> Every day, right? Powerful article a few years ago about, uh, about people who have had heart transplants 
and the percentage of them who don't change their behaviors. So, so again, I don't want to minimize relapse within the world of substance use disorder, but even that we can look at through a bit of a different lens of understanding that behavior change, again, even in light of catastrophic health consequences, <laughs> seems to be really challenging for us human beings. Yeah, it, it is. I mean, I found one of my favorite things about this podcast is that I can talk about anything that will help any individual better themselves. Right. And it, it gets such a label thing because of the actions that come come from substance use. <laughs> There's just the, the actions are terrible. They're messed up. Yep. And, you know what, what we're doing. And, and that's the only reason it gets separated. But there's somebody who sits down in front of the TV and never talks and works on themselves ever. And all. all they do is get on right. Facebook and watch Netflix all day. That's right. And they're sitting there thinking that they are so much better than that's somebody right. who was that's right. in addiction. That's right. And maybe that person sitting in front of the TV uh, all day is a person whose doctor has told them, you really need to get, get up and, and, and get walk active. three times a mm -hmm. week. And they're not. And so I don't want to judge them either. I just don't want judgment to be brought just to this specific population of folks, those folks in recovery from substance use disorder. Because again, we know that this for some human beings, creating change and sustaining change, significant lifestyle change is really hard. Mm. It's hard to do. And I would, I would invite any of your listeners just to even think about their own lives of any time in their life where they have attempted to institute something. a significant lifestyle change. There is just something about us that makes that hard. It takes yes. hard work. It's, yes. Yeah, it's and it often takes relapse. Mm -hmm. It often takes multiple times of attempting it to finally figure it out and to understand, and this is the other piece that has driven so much of the narrative around relapses. So person shows up for treatment for their fifth time. And what we know, we know how that person has often been met. You know, you haven't been working hard enough, the whole, the horrible, you haven't hit bottom thing, and, oh. right? And, and what, oh, what doesn't, right? The, term, the what, rock bottom right. thing. What doesn't happen with that person often, although I like to think maybe it's changing, is this person shows up for treatment for the fifth time and the person who's working with them sits down and says, wow, it's awesome that you're back here. That was not easy to walk back in. Let's look at all of your treatment experiences and figure out what worked. And that person is going to look at them and say, but nothing's worked. I've been back. And we get to say, no, somewhere in there, things something worked. Something has worked. Right? Yeah. So you learn something. And again, why it did not result in long-term sustained recovery I always say to people, will you go write that book? Because I'm looking for that answer. <laughs> we don't have that answer. But can we look at this human being and trust that along the way in creating lifestyle change? They did something they right. They did something. And even if they maintained it for two months, wow, you maintained re recovery. You maintained absence for two months. Let's dig into that. What did you do? I often ask questions like, listen, tell me in all of your experiences with helping people, tell me what hasn't worked because I don't want to repeat that as the new helping person in your life. <laughs> we can do that conversation in this really positive, upbeat way that celebrates how difficult change is for us and that for many of us, reaching a place, maintaining a good weight, stopping nicotine use, anything, usually is I start, I start, I start, I fall back. I start, I start, I start, I fall back. That seems to be the pattern for mm -hmm. most of us human beings. And each of those times we pick ourselves up and start, can we celebrate that and not shame it, which I think is something that has happened historically in the treatment world, treatment and recovery world. It, well, we go to the negatives. We do. Right. Yeah, we love doing that. There is. And then that also gives the person 
to find their own way to create right. their own path that's to it. have developed their own you know what you're right i did do something right yes and when you find it and you name it and you you know you give it you write it down and you get right. it down it's like okay i did this right and you fail again and you go back okay what did i miss right what part of this did i miss okay but i did this right this time it got me this much right and it's just it's a beautiful thing yes it is and you can use that and again like you said it would change in anything right whatever it is you're doing right my mom talks about all the time her go-to thing was was eating yeah. When after my brother and sister, she would she stress eats. Right. And that was something she said. She's learned so much from just going on this journey with me about her own habits and her own things that she right. needs to change. Right. And it's just so it's it's awesome to finally because this is keep this was the mindset like I come into almost everything with since I can remember is it isn't the same way for everybody. No, it's not. Whether it's your theology, whatever your beliefs are, it doesn't matter. Whatever it is, you can take away from it different pieces right. and create your own thing. And cause we, as much as we are so alike, we are so, so completely different. different. Right. Right. So completely right. different. The other piece for me with all of this, regardless of what the behavior is, and we've kind of talked about it, is this tendency in our culture to, to look at people and ways of being and judge them. So whether we judge you for having a substance use disorder or we judge you for being overweight or as someone who worked in public ed for 30 years, there's a tendency in that system, again, filled with, all well-meaning, loving people, but there's an inertia to the system. And, and sometimes the message in the system for those kids that are not doing well is some combination of lazy, unmotivated, not interested. And the system sometimes holds on to those definitions and then just says kind of end of discussion. All right, lazy, unmotivated, not interested. That's why that child's not doing well. So the other part of this for me all, also, both in and out of the world of substance use disorder, is what we need to do to both for us individually and how we think about ourselves, never mind how we look at others, is, is to attempt to be a little bit less judgmental about the places in our lives where we get stuck. Now, I'm not saying minimize the places, because we all get to look around at our lives and ask ourselves, are there places where I feel stuck? Are there places where I'd like to up my game? Or, but I just don't have a whole lot of experience that tells me that when somebody is stuck, they're like digging it, right? This is mm -hmm. awesome. I love being in this place of not happy, right? This is great. I, right, it's is great. And I'm only here because I'm kind of lazy. Because I think we look in at times in our judgment and we assign these very simplistic, judgmental, but also very simplistic definitions mm -hmm for the complexity of human behavior. And I worry a little bit less about the people who look in and judge and a whole lot more about the dialogues we run in our own head of how we judge ourselves at moments in our lives when our life isn't necessarily moving in the direction we would love it to. And you know, you know from our conversations, for me as a coach, I'm all about let's just change behavior. You don't need to be wonderfully insightful about stuff, but we can honor people's journeys and we can honor that we are complex beings and we can honor that behavior change is hard. It's really hard to do for some reason, for whatever reason. And there's a workshop I do for professionals on, on, uh, on personal professional wellness. And I have this slide in there that I put up at, so I spend a whole day with them talking about behavior change and taking care of yourself and all of this wonderful stuff. And then at the end of the day, there's one of the last slides I throw up is that, and the slide says, our excuses are valid. Hmm. And what we talk about is that if in my own internal dialogue, about change. And I like, so let's say I want to get to the gym, right? My goal is to get to the gym. And I just keep coming up with excuses to not get to the gym. And I don't get to the gym and I keep coming up with excuses. I have an option at that moment. I can view those excuses through this lens of such 
negativity and self-judgment and I'm a horrible person and I'm weak and I'm lazy. Or I can get curious about those excuses. Now, there's still, there's still, I'm still not moving. Mm -hmm. I'm still not moving in the direction I'd like, but I can sit and say, hmm, so what is this? I keep, I know I want to get to the gym and I'm not. Wow. What is that for me? And then what we can help people do is we can bring in that wonderful model called stages of change and invite people to get curious about the difference between pre-contemplation, contemplation, Hmm. preparation, and action. Because what that model does, along with just some curiosity, is it it can stop the self-judgment that I'm not getting to the the definition for why I'm not getting to the gym is I'm inherently weak or lazy. Because we are just so much more complicated than that. And I'm I'm, again, I'm not making excuses for people. It's just a mindset of when I hear those excuses in my head, do I judge the crap out of myself? Because that's not a dialogue that's going to move you forward. Never. Never is. Or do I just sit with some curiosity? Hmm, what is making this difficult? Do I engage in some conversation with people that I trust from a standpoint of curiosity? So so when I say our excuses are valid, they are valid because if we invalidate them, we invalidate a piece of ourselves. And then we don't move. And then we don't move. Then we definitely don't move. Then yep. we're just stuck and, and we go nowhere. I've just been trying to like get people to be even more aware of the the two separate voices in their head. I I think that's a huge thing. I think most people don't even realize that they have a voice in their head. And it's so trippy when you think about it, but you have a voice in your head that says something and then a voice that critiques the shit out of it. Every word that you say. And to get those two voices, I have learned to really just like coincide with each other. If they're agreeing, if they're happy, you know, give that, give that critic Right. voice validation yep it's there what, what do you need thank right. you i appreciate everything it sounds so like goofy and childish right. but right. once you start saying well you know what is it that you want right. what is it that you need and you start getting them to befriend each other it becomes easier at least for me right personally speaking it was easier to get up and start doing stuff that's right and stay disciplined and continuously right. doing things and sometimes i think you know, when people ask me what I do as a coach, the often part of my explanation of what I do as a coach is that I simply sit with a person, help to create a safe place, come at them from the standpoint of autonomy. I don't have your answers, you do. Mm-hmm. And that I believe, and my experience tells me, if we sit together like this long enough, that one of the things that is going to happen is your voice of intuition will start to speak louder. And it will start to speak as loud as that self-critic that we all have. Because I think for me sometimes, not to minimize that self-critic and how much it can hold us back, but I just have this belief after all the years of doing this work that most of us come into adolescenthood and adulthood listening to so many competing narratives about who we're supposed to be, how we're supposed to be, what people want for us. And all, again, usually from very well-meaning, loving people. I mean, just society. In general, in general yeah, right? Yeah. That somewhere we we have lost the ability to listen to our intuition. And our intuition is our wisdom. And very rarely does our wisdom take us down the wrong road. But it is difficult for a lot of adults to tune back into it and trust it. And that is that is inherent in that standpoint, that stance of autonomy. Mm. That, Sean, I am not going to tell you what to do. One, because I just know my life. And most days I can barely keep that together. <laughs> And I trust that you have your answers, even in this moment when you're looking at me and saying, but I don't. You do. You do. And we're going to hang out here long enough. And I'm just going to keep saying, you do. 
because you do. <laughs> and I, my experience tells me in facilitating this kind of conversation with folks that they do. That voice of intuition starts to speak up and we invite people to just dig into it and trust it and explore it and get curious about it and maybe compare it to some of the other external narratives that we've been bombarded with because so many of those narratives are false. I call them false narratives. They're not mm -hmm. true. That's to me is the coolest part of of doing this work with folks. That's, it's an awesome, it's an awesome tool. Yeah. I mean, there's, it is, we like to intellectualize everything Yeah. and we want to sit down. I mean, I know people who can't make a decision that take years to decide right. what TV to buy. Right. Cause you just want to sit there and compare and you want to know everything and you write it down and all right, this work, this work, this work. I mean, we just get so as beautiful, much as I love science and as much as I love just saying, here's the proof. This is what, this is going to be how I do it. And this right. is going to work, but it just doesn't work like that yeah. when it comes to life, when it comes to making decisions. And I always, I often say, I very much will love the, uh, not to get too into philosophy, the whole free will and determinism arguments, one of my favorites. And I always tell people, you know, I really don't believe we have free will. I feel like choice is an illusion because why did you choose the choice you chose? Right. And when you go with your gut, when you go with your, you know, your wisdom, as you called it, your intuition, it tends to be the correct choice. Yes, it does. <laughs> right. Might not be correct for other people. No. Which is the challenging which part sometimes. Because so many of those other narratives are born of what other people want or think is best. Mm -hmm. So that in and of itself is also a challenge. And and I think that's true, very true in, in most people's recovery journeys is often decisions have to be made that, that are not necessarily going to uh, meet the needs of other folk. And mm -hmm. how do you want to negotiate that and talk about that and uh, integrate that into the decisions you make about your recovery? I mean, how many people are making millions of dollars a year being a banker because their dad wanted them to be? And they're and miserable. They're miserable. Yeah. And they absolutely hate their life. That's they hate right. their job. Right. And it is. I mean, that's one thing I am so thankful my parents never did was try right. to really live through me as far as right. what I'm going to do with my life. Look, there's some research out in the, in the executive coaching world, depending upon the article you read, it could be anywhere from 50 to 75% of people every day get up and go off to a job that they feel anywhere from ambivalent about to mm. miserable. All right. So at best, yep. ambivalent. Yeah. To, it to, is what it is. Right. To miserable. <laughs> and that says something. That says something about the, the systems that are in place to get us ready for it, the conversations that we engage kids in to get ready for career choices. I would argue how quickly we're asking kids to make those choices. Like, oh, my gosh. By 18, you have to know. And I don't even know who the hell I was till I was 28. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> and that's that's a it's that's crazy. A, that's another a, yes. a podcast for another day of, <laughs> of, of how big that issue is in our culture, that the evidence is. So when I read those kinds of statistics, what that tells me is that the systems that are in place to get us ready aren't working. They're not working. And that, nope. again, another place where there's a lot of narratives about what success and happiness is and, and how quickly you should jump there. And it's not working. People aren't happy. I also, I've had the opportunity uh, to travel to Israel a few times. And it's very interesting in that culture. And there's some things we could learn from it. So in Israel, when you graduate high school, if you're a male, you do three years. If you're a female, you do two years in the service. Mandatory. Hmm. Right. And it's just, you know, since the founding of the state in 1948, that's just been the way it is. So folks will do two or three years in the service right out of high school. And then there's even above and beyond that, if you decide, and many people make a career in the service, but even if you decide not to, there is such cultural support 
to then go and travel. Hmm. Just go and travel for a year or two. And so for many in that culture, they're not making that decision about college career until early 20s. And I think about that and not that I necessarily would want all of our children graduating high school and going into the service. But how cool would it be if if the narrative in our culture was you graduate high school and you do two years in the Peace Corps or you travel oh or gosh, you do just some volunteer work? This thing about you have to go off to college. What are you going to do? What are you going to major in? What are you going to do? It, and it, look, there's so many metrics that are telling us it's not working. People are not happy. But yeah, college we keep debt doing it. And we just keep doing it. Now, I do like to th- think, and I do believe there's some evidence that that narrative is starting to change because there is growing recognition that for the last generation, we have sent every kid off, especially in the burbs, every kid off to college for a four-year degree who didn't need to go. Uh, I can't tell you how many times in my time at school that I would have a, a, a junior or senior in my office believing that they're the only one in their entire class who doesn't know what they want to do. And I would laugh and I would say, dude, I'm telling you, oh man, no matter what your friends are saying, almost all of you don't know. I have any idea. Right? Or kids sitting in my office, Mr. Greer, I'm filling out all these applications for college because I'm supposed to, right? I don't even know if I want to go. Or I, I like to think there's growing recognition that what we have done over the last generation hasn't worked on a lot of levels, especially the college debt level. And there is definitely growing recognition of for the last generation while we've been sending everybody for a bachelor's degree, we now can't find people to fix our plumbing, to do our electrical work. <laughs> uh, fix and, our roof. Right, right. Yeah. And we and we need those folks. Um and those are, are wonderful careers, no less important than a there's, bachelor's degree or you know whatever. I mean, there's an argument that they're more important. Right, right, right. <laughs> so I, I think we're getting there, but it's a good example of a place where for a very long time, we've just, I think we kind of sometimes go along like robots. We are. And it, you find out later on, it's just a game. Like right. there's always this, this goal to be grab to get through middle school, then high school, right. then go to right. college and get your degree and then climb your way up the corporate ladder and you right. get up to that. And finally you're sitting in the top floor of the building and you're the CEO and you realize it's all a joke. That's right. Cause you're no happier than you were right. when you were 20, you know, trying to do all yeah. this. So yeah. it's this constant, yeah, culture. And I guess kind of to relate this back to the whole recovery thing is I think it's so important for people and be able to silence those voices yeah. and learn what you're passionate about. Right. Because when you start feeling fulfilled and doing something passionate, and then a lot of people have these grandiose ideas, I'm going to be a rock star, go on Hollywood. Fine. But, you know, it's also, no, I mean, like my good buddy, Matt, he's an electrician. He said, I've never been happier. That's right. I absolutely love this. And I've been in collections just for the money. And he's like, I love trying to figure out problems. I love doing little tinkerings and wirings. And, you know, I be a nurse, go out and be a nurse. Like you want to help people in that way, whatever it is, but you have to silence those other voices. Right. Give yourself permission to Mm -hmm. one time I, when someone, I was in a conversation with someone about what I do as a coach. And I said, look, here, here's how I view what I do as a coach. If somebody called me and said, Keith, I want to hire you as a coach uh, because my goal is to develop and build a set of wings and fly to the moon. That my role as a coach, my response as a coach would be, dude, that's awesome. Let's get going. Because here's what's going to happen. Like, who am I to say, as another human being, you are the craziest fill in the blank that I can I've ever met that's never going to happen. It's stupid. Right? It's stupid. So my job as a coach because coaches don't tell people what to do. Mm. You know, we're not a, we're, we're not the coach you have seen maybe on Oprah. That that's not <laughs> what we do. My job is to engage with them, ask questions, listen, reflect, 
help them think through this. And one of two things is going to happen. They might be the first to build a set of wings and fly to the moon, or they will reach their own conclusion. Ah, not exactly what I wanted to do. Maybe (laughs) not realistic. Where can I bring my passion and skills to somewhere else? But they get to make that decision. It doesn't come from some external source. Oh, and it's so much easier to accept when you make it on your own. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Right. So much easier to accept. Right. That it, yeah, that's a hysterical thing that I right. think that's how we started off when somebody you can go be going to do it and very happily. And if somebody says, hey, can you go grab that? And you're like, yeah. no, I don't I don't want to grab it anymore. <laughs> I, I, I invite your listeners. You've heard me say this. I invite your listeners to go on Google and Google the following the theory of psychological reactance. Mm. So this is a well-researched theory in the psychological world. Uh, you'll, you'll find it uh, if you Google it. And what the theory of psychological reactance basically says is when we are are told what to do, especially when it's unsolicited. No matter how well-meaning we are as the person who is telling somebody else what to do or what we think they should do, the default setting in the brain is no, nope. I'm not doing that. And we know this is true. And if we, and this is the, to me, this is the kind of information that for many years we have not integrated in our work in the substance use disorder world. That and, and even more up-to-date relevant information about now what we know about creating safety and trust in the brain, about the role of ambivalence in change. These are all concepts that in the, in the last 20 years we've learned about that we can bring into this conversation in the substance use disorder world and anywhere else in helping people understand how to create change in their life. And fundamental to that is it's yours. Mm -hmm. It's your gig to create change. People can't motivate you. They can maybe inspire you, but But that wears off, but it wears off. So, so a colleague of mine at, 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 uh, who's a researcher at Yale, Mike Panalone always talks about that. He believes that everybody has enough motivation. Even when they, mm-hmm. again, even when they think they don't, that our role as coaches is to help people dig into what their motivation is, find their motivation to change, because that's going to produce change that lasts versus some someone from an external source trying to motivate you, which often then kicks in that theory of psychological mm-hmm. reactance. Don't tell me what to do. I always say at the end of the day, we just know more. We just know more than we knew 15, 20 years ago about how to engage people in a change conversation. And a lot of that information still isn't being utilized uh, in my perfect world in the way I would love to see it being utilized. Yeah, I I think another important thing I I would like to send along with that is how we make our goals as well and how to make, I I say, make smaller goals, shorter goals. Yes. The one clinical psychologist I really, really love says aim lower. Yeah, if you right. aim too yeah. high <laughs> and you miss, like aim lower. And if you start taking it, you know, it's uh, right. I'm trying to think of the Russian neuropsychologist Zagoski or a zone of proximal development guy. And right, right. I know he, who you mean. You know, yep. Yeah, he's just, I mean, I love that whole system. Okay, here I am now. Tomorrow I'm going to do this. You right. know, I'm going to make my bet every day. Right. And I'm going to come back and I'm going to continue to do that. And as you see that progress, you add on something else to yes. your goals. And you just go slow and you take your time. And I think an issue is, and you see this with people who are just starting off in recovery. Oh, this guy, I'll never have 20 years clean. It's like, stop comparing oh yourself. My God. Stop comparing right. yourself to other people. Right. You know, compare yourself to who you were yesterday, not right. to somebody else's right. today. Right. And then you start seeing this growth. 
And so I like this was another one of my big points in my presentation. One of the biggest things I've seen is by comparing yourself to who you were yesterday, you continuously see the things you have changed because in our human brain, we become so used to something we've changed after a certain period of time, it becomes an expectation. Right. When it becomes an expectation and you forget to do it, you forget that you just changed this and you've done it every day for 364 right. days. Right. And that was another huge point that, that you know, a change that I had to make in myself. Yeah, yeah. Like, all right, I'm doing this. And that goes along a long way right. with finding something you love to do right. and completing it and yep. staying motivated. And Look, there's another somewhat simple piece to, to goal setting that often is left out. Again, because there's this belief, general belief, that if I'm motivated enough, I should be able to set a goal and achieve it. And when I don't achieve it, Usually what kicks in is that self-recriminating conversation, mm -hmm. internal conversation. Oh, I wasn't Suck. motivated Suck. enough and I'm lazy. And I'm, <laughs> Again, if we can just all accept the fact that no matter how motivated any of us are, we, behavior change is hard. It's just hard. Mm -hmm. the, you're kind of saying the brain likes what it does in the way it's always done it. And when we challenge our brain to do something different, our brain doesn't like that. If we own that, in, in the coaching world, one of the things that we would say that coaches bring to a change conversation is that we talk with our, the clients that we work with about accountability. So that one of the roles I can play in somebody's life is that I can be an accountability partner and or just even engage with clients in a conversation about how accountability can be helpful. That we are awesome, us human beings, at leaving a conversation where we talked about our goals, commit to our goals, and the minute we leave the conversation, that internal critics kicks mm -hmm. in and we're immediately talking ourselves out of it. Can we just all recognize that and own that and get that this isn't as simple as I'll achieve my goals if I'm motivated enough. For many people, and the research in the world of change would support this. For many of us, we need an external source of accountability. Now, the challenge with that conversation often is the minute you talk with an adult about accountability, they picture their parents. Mm. And, and that's not the <laughs> accountability we're talking yeah. about, right? So when I have those conversations with clients and we start talking about what kind of accountability would be helpful, who might you hire, and I use the word hire as an accountability partner, part of that conversation is... All right, client, if you want someone to be your accountability partner, you have to define accountability for them so it is done in a way that is most meaningful to you. And you need to check with that person, can they do that? If they can't provide accountability in the way you need it, then they can stay your friend, but they're not your accountability partner. And that can be very hard because, again, there's a lot of well-meaning people in our lives who want to support us, yep. but in their head, they're thinking of supporting you in the way that makes sense to them. <laughs> Accountability only works and it doesn't feel parental when the person gets to specifically define what accountability what is them. Yep. to them and how that's going to help. So again, when you look in the literature around weight loss, they always talk about, well, you go public with your goal, share it with people. Go to the Weight right, Watchers right, group. Whatever, whatever that week. is, yeah. right? But I would also add to that, be very clear with people what it about is. what is the best type of accountability for you. That piece alone, I, I think in the world of change, people don't use enough. And, and again, I think that's inherent in this narrative that I should be able to create change in my life if I'm motivated enough. And motivation is, is a prerequisite, but for many folks, it's not enough because change is hard. It's almost never enough. Right? Yeah. Ha having a couple of people in my life who I know in the way I would like them to are going to say, hey, Keith, how are you doing with your goal? Hey, do you want to check in with me? That does help mm -hmm. in the achievement of goals. 
It, I mean, motivation just wears off. I mean, you see it in throughout all these com- Fortune 500 right. companies. You get some big speaker to come in. All of a sudden, your sales go up. They come back down. Right. Sales go up. They come back down. Get right. somebody in here again. You know, let's bring in Tony friggin' Robbins <laughs> to talk to everybody. And it just it doesn't. I mean, yeah. anything you want to do. I mean, I look at my life and I've done it a hundred million bajillion times. Right. I'm going to start running. I'm going to create my own website and stick this out and do this and do that. And right. it just goes right down the shitter. I mean, it just it's, it's hard. It wears off. It, it wears off. It's hard. It's hard. It, and, <laughs> and yeah, it's just it just seems to be a, a challenging journey for us human beings. It is. It absolutely is. What do we got here? Okay, almost uh, two hours. Here. Oh, wow. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah, like I said, I, I think I sent you that email. Yeah. I was like, this this could be a long one. <laughs> Not that I mean, I I love it, but I knew we'd break the room nine okay. record here. All right, good. That's all right. So we'll we'll be back for sure. I would love to pick this conversation up with you. Yeah, I mean, even going through here, I think we had five different episodes we could have had right, right. and veered off. Yeah, let's do it. So awesome. Well, thank you for coming on, man. I appreciate it greatly. Thanks, Sean. And uh, oh, real quick, you should give you know. RecoveryCoachUniversity.com. So, yeah, if people want to contact me, uh, uh, Lori and my website is RecoveryCoachUniversity.com. Uh, if you're out in Facebook, uh, find your way to Recovery Coach University. We try and post a couple of times a day just articles related to personal growth, recovery, things like that. Uh, we do our Recovery Coach University radio show every Thursday morning from 11 to noon. And it is it's W-A-Y-O-F-M. So it's uh, W-A-Y-O-F-M. Org. You okay. can stream our, our show. Uh, and um, my email is keith at recoverycoachuniversity.com. Uh, I always love hearing from people about this topic. And yeah, thank you. It's been been a blast. And it's, it's awesome. Yeah. I did not think two hours went by. I always look at that time mm-hmm. afterwards. I'm like, holy crap. It always flies by. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, Keith. Thank Take you care. very much, man. All right. Bye. Alright guys, thank you for listening. As I said before this episode started, this was such a badass episode. I loved it. Thank you again, Keith. And as he said before, you can go to recoverycoachuniversity.com to get all the information about what Keith and Lori do. They are both awesome people and I did say when we got done recording as I was leaving, I will plan an episode to do with Keith and Lori both because Lori is an also incredible human being. Both of them are. They're very knowledgeable. You can learn so much from them and just show them your support at recoverycoachuniversity.com. Make sure you check out their Facebook Live every Thursday at 11 a.m. to 12 p.m. They have new guests on, awesome guests, and I absolutely enjoy their show as well. As always, you guys are the best. Much love. Have a great week. Let me know how you felt about that solo episode I put out in the middle of the week. If you didn't know about it, well, now you do. So get on room9podcast.com and check it out or your favorite podcast listening platform. All right, y'all. Have a great fourth. Peace.